The children are dismissed to Children's Church. I would normally direct you to a passage of Scripture, but this is going to be more of an overview of a subject. And so, I will have various texts on the screen. Well, a couple weeks ago, my wife and kids were gone at a homeschool event, and so I had an evening to myself. And I have various things queued up in our Hulu account, and there are certain things that I know my wife's not that interested in, and so this is my opportunity when I have a night by myself to watch those things. And for whatever reason, I decided that day I was going to watch a movie, which is very rare for me. I don't watch a lot of movies throughout the year, and I certainly I can't remember the last time I watched a movie by myself. But I had it in my head that I was going to watch the movie The Notebook. Now, The Notebook is a movie that Becca and I saw 20 years ago when it came out. And when you get older, all of a sudden everything is 20 years ago. But it really was. It was 20 years ago. And one of the main characters in the story has dementia. And I think... I wanted to watch that movie because of what I just went through the last few years with my mom, and I thought that in some way it might be therapeutic for me to just sort of watch this very sad movie about this woman who has dementia. Now, if you've never heard of this movie, it is a love story that probably appeals more to women than to men. In fact, I was chatting with a friend, and I asked him, hey, have you ever seen The Notebook? And he jokingly said no, because I am straight and I am a male. (laughs) However, and I am as well, thank you very much, I am very secure in these things, and I share with you without hesitation or embarrassment that it really is a beautiful and wonderful love story. Now, I'm going to spoil it for you if you have not seen it because, hey, it came out 20 years ago, and my goodness, if you haven't seen it by now, you probably never will. It begins with an elderly elderly man named Noah who is in a retirement home, and he is speaking with a nurse about one of the residents, Allie, whom we soon discover is his wife, and his wife no no longer remembers him nor their children. They've been married for 50 years or so, and she has no recollection of their relationship whatsoever. And because he loves her so much and he wants to be near her, he moves into the retirement home down the hall, and every day he introduces himself and asks if he can read a story to her. And she's reluctant, but after some encouragement by one of the staff members, she she consents, and so he sits down with her, And he reads to her the story of their life together. Noah kept a notebook, hence the name of the movie. And it was the story of their life. And every day he reads to her with the hopes that she will remember. And from that scene, most of the movie is a flashback revealing how they met and how they fell in love and how they were separated shortly after because she went to college and he went to the war. He was drafted. And then occasionally would fast forward again to the retirement home and the daily routine of this man Noah wanting to be near his wife. 
In one scene, their grown children arrive for a visit along with the grandchildren, and every member of the family has to introduce themselves to the mom because she does not remember them. When they have a moment alone with their father, they urge him to come back and live in his house and not to live in the retirement home because mom doesn't remember you anyway. But he explains that he has made a commitment to stand by her and take care of her, and it doesn't matter if she doesn't remember him because he remembers her. It flashes back again to when he's home from the war, but because she never heard of him, she thinks he lost interest when they were separated all of those years, seven years, only to later discover that he wrote a letter to her every day of the year for an entire year, and those were intercepted by her mother. So this woman, this young girl, Allie, assumes that he's gone, she meets another man, she's engaged to be married, but she was always in love with Noah, and she sees an article in the newspaper about him, and he built this fabulous house, he he refurbished this old house and made it into a house that she would love. They talked about it years before. He made it just according to the, her dream house. So she decides she's going to visit. When she goes and visits him, she is conflicted because she's engaged to marry another man, but this is the man that she loves. It flashes forward again, and the old man, Noah, is called in to see the doctor at the retirement home, and the doctor tells him he's wasting his time reading to his wife. It's a progressive disease, and she's never going to remember. He should just go and live his life. And again, Noah is persistent that maybe she will remember someday, but even if she doesn't, His primary reason for doing it is because of his love for her and his promise to her. He asks Allie if she would have dinner with him. She hesitates but agrees. And then there is a moment when they're having dinner that she remembers him. Only for a few minutes, but she remembers. And she asks about his life and she asks about the children. And she asks, what happened to me? And they have a very brief but touching exchange until a few moments later he becomes a stranger to her once more. And as I'm watching this movie, there's a certain point in the movie where God reveals his love for me through what is happening in this story. I had to pause the movie and I just started bawling like I've never bawled before. And for about five minutes or so, I am just overwhelmed by this love of God that is being poured into me. And I cannot describe it. It was almost so overwhelming I felt I could not bear it. It was very personal. It was very profound. I was not weeping because it's a romantic love story. I was not weeping because I was thinking of my mom and her dementia. I was weeping because what was being portrayed in that movie is a picture of God's love for his church and particularly God's love for me. I don't know if you experience this, but I struggle with 
believing that God really loves me. So for 27 years now, God has made himself known to me. I was born again. I began to discover who God is. And over the years, I discover who I really am. And because I have such an awareness of my inherent sinfulness, I struggle and wrestle with believing that God really does love me. I know what the Bible says, but I wrestle with this. I agree with the songwriter who wrote the hymn, How Can It Be? How can it be? How can it be that God should love a soul like me? How can it be? And I was having a particularly discouraging day that day where I was grieving over my faults and failures and I wanted to lose myself in some kind of entertainment. And God chose this moment to touch me to the depths of my soul to where all I could do was sit there and weep and experience the love of God. Now, where does that come from in a movie? How are you watching a movie and all of a sudden thinking about God's love for you? Well, in Ephesians 5, God says that the covenant of human marriage is a symbol or an illustration of his love for his church. Not that his love for his church is like a marriage, and he was looking around trying to figure out a good illustration for that, but a marriage is a picture that God designed so that we might have some kind of idea of how much God loves us. So your marriage, my marriage, every marriage, all living illustrations of a truer and greater covenant which is God and His people. God becoming man to be joined to this human bride called the church. And what this movie did for me was show me a picture of Christ's love for me, not just when He went to the cross, but even now. The movie portrayed a husband who unceasingly upholds his covenant with his bride, staying by her always, never leaving her, never forsaking her, always remembering her, even when she doesn't remember him. You see, you and I go throughout our Christian life, and we remember him, and then we don't remember him. You remember him for a time and then through the busyness of life and through this event and that trial and you run here and there and you often don't remember him. Your remembering him is fleeting and inconsistent. But his remembering you is perfect and unwavering. And the image is that Christ is the true husband who will remain with you even when you aren't faithful to remain with Him. And what I saw in this movie is the illustration of how much Christ loves me. Now, just so we're clear, I don't look to Hollywood movies to teach me things about God. I don't use movies and illustrations in my sermons because I don't like to. And I struggled with whether I should hear or not. But as I was thinking about it, Jesus used stories to teach his disciples. 
And he would talk about a wedding and he would talk about a farmer and he would talk about a runaway son. And for whatever reason, God chose to use this movie to speak to me that night. I'm not saying this is going to be your experience if you run home and watch it. But it did get me thinking about the wonders of God's love. I was floating for two days after that. I could think of nothing else. I was consumed with it. I wanted to just be in it and live in it. I was like, Lord, take me now if this is what it's like. Because it was perfect and it was pure and it was wonderful. And it made me want to talk to you today about God's love for you. God's love for you is so profound It is unlike any kind of human love you have experienced. It is far, it is light years beyond anything you have ever known. And the Bible uses words and phrases and sentences and paragraphs and books and letters to try to communicate this. And I think one reason that God had the New Testament written in Greek is because Greek is a much more dynamic language than English. It's much more descriptive. For example, in Greek, there are six words for love. Six. In English, we have one. So you can say, I love Thai food. I love sunsets. I love my wife. And there is no differentiating between those things. There's not a distinction. It's just all, it's all flattened out. Hopefully you don't mean you love Thai food and sunsets in the same way that you love your wife. But in Greek you have six words to describe the nuances of what love is. And the Bible uses three of those. You may know this already. This could be reviewed for you. There's agapao, which is a sacrificial kind of love. This is a love that serves others. The love that lays down one's life for another. There is storge, which is a love that is within family, a familial kind of love, parents and siblings. And there is phileo, which is a love among friends. And these tend to overlap and it's not a hard and fast rule because sometimes the word love is used and you think it's going to be agapao but it ends up being phileo and it's not a perfect cookie cutter kind of thing but I'm just pointing this out to show you that the Bible makes distinctions between different kinds of love. We all can perceive that you have a love for a spouse that is different from a love for a friend that is different from a love for a child. Different kinds of love within the category called love. And what I thought I would do in our time together is show you how God's love for you is communicated that is unlike the way that we think about God's love for us. I mean, some of it will be, but I want, you to, show, I want to show you how comprehensive God's love is. It is not singular. It is not flattened out. It is dynamic and it is... Comprehensive is the word I chose. So what is God's love like? As mentioned, God's love is like that a husband has for his wife. Or to make this very simple, it is marital. It is a kind of marital love. 
The Bible uses the word covenant to describe this most personal and intimate relationship. Being in covenant means that you and another person have a special commitment that is based on promise and that is not to be broken. And when God describes His plan to be joined to His people, this is how He describes it. It is a covenant. Meaning, it is not maintained by our obedience or our performance. Okay, A lot of people become Christians and then they think, okay, Jesus is my Savior. Now I have to work to stay in God's good favor. And there is a sense where God calls you to live a holy life, to be with Him, to follow Him. But the wrong thinking enters in and thinks, if I don't do these things, God's no longer going to love me. And that is not true. God, God's love for you is marital. It is based on covenant. It is based on a promise. And the best way for us to conceptualize this is, again, through a human marriage. If we were talking about covenants and we had no human covenants that we could look to, it would be a little confusing. What is a covenant? But what God does is describe this in Ephesians chapter 5. What does this look like? What does God's love look like? And he uses marriage as an illustration. He says in verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Husbands, what do you do when you're cold? You put on a jacket. What do you do when you're hungry? You get something to eat. And this is how you are to think about your wife. You are to love your wife as if she was your own body that you clothe and that you feed. And this depicts a bigger picture, a bigger covenant, which is Christ and His church. This is what Jesus does for His church. He loves her and gives Himself for her. And the illustration or the picture is that just as the husband is the head of his wife, so Christ is the head of his church, which is his body. We are the body of Christ. Collectively, we are the bride of Christ. We are so joined to him. We are as joined to him as a head is joined to a body. He goes on in verse 28, He who loves his wife loves himself. This is how Christ loves his bride. But someone might ask, is this really a fixed arrangement? I mean, isn't it possible? Something's going to happen in the future where we could be disqualified or we could fall away because of our inherent weakness. In other words, we've really been joined to Christ, but maybe something's going to happen that's going to take us away from him. This is why I had Richard read out of Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This covenantal, sacrificial love that we've been describing. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him 
who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, using the strongest language imaginable, God is communicating to us that Christ will never abandon His bride. He will never forsake His bride. Now, there may be people who profess faith in Jesus, but they love this world and they love their sin, and they go and live however they want, and they say they belong to Jesus. We're not talking about that kind of person. We're talking about the kind of person who loves Christ and who follows Christ, meaning a true believer. And the good news, the promise, the, the love promise to that believer is he's never going to abandon you. In human covenants, we have a saying, usually during the ceremony, till death do us part. And that is similar to what is described here. But in this case, death doesn't separate us. It brings us even closer. Hebrews 13.5, in the midst of a warning to potential, uh, to false believers maybe, to, to, to a mixed multitude of believers and non-believers, the warning is keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's an interesting combination of ideas. Don't love money. Jesus is never going to leave you. What does that mean? It means it does not matter what happens. You could become penniless. You could lose your job. You could get some disease. You could end up being poor. But we can still be content. Why? Because he says he will never leave us. For better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, his final instructions to his disciples, he says in Matthew 28, 18, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We saw back in Luke chapter 20 that there will be no marriage in heaven. And that is because we will all be married to Christ. Marriage on earth is just a, an illustration. It's a symbol of a greater covenant. And once that greater covenant is made manifest, when we are in the presence of Jesus, there will not be any more need for the illustration. Your marriage is a picture of that which is coming, so that's why there's no marriage in heaven. The earthly covenant is going to be overtaken by the heavenly covenant. Just a few more so you can see this theme in various places. Isaiah 62.5, the prophet says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 2 Corinthians 
Verse 2, Paul says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul's telling them, knock it off. You're supposed to belong to Jesus. Revelation 19.7, this grand climactic event at the end, it says, let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And that bride, beloved, is you. What is God's love for you like? It is like the love that a husband has for his wife. But it's even more complex than that. If it was just that, that would be amazing. That would be so profound, you could be figuratively in heaven over that truth. But we also learn from the Scriptures that it's more comprehensive than that. It's the kind of love that a father has for his children. God's love is not only marital love, it is also a parental kind of love. When God saves a sinner, they are not only joined to the corporate bride who will be in covenant with Christ forever, but it's the kind of love that is also pictured as a father has for his child. Now those of you who have children, you know how profound it is, how wonderful it is, the love that you have for your child or children. I remember before we had kids, I could not conceptualize of what that kind of love was like. And then after we had one and another one was on the way, I started to worry. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to love the second one as much as I do the first one. And I do. And when God gives you children, He gives you a kind of love for those children that is indescribable. And this gave me insight into the love of God. God puts a love in your heart for a child that is unique and wonderful and different than other types of love. It is different than marital love. It is different than friendship love. It is different than the love you have for a neighbor. When God describes His love for us, this is one of those ways. John 1.11 Jesus came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Please notice we were not born children of God. That is a very popular idea in the world that we are all children of God by means of our creation. No, the Bible says that we are children of wrath. It says we are born rebels against God and what God does through conversion is make us His children. This is called the doctrine of adoption. So we become children of God and God loves us as a father loves a child. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and following, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, 
He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So by faith we are joined to Jesus Christ and we not only become the corporate bride of Christ, but another aspect of our relationship to God is that we become His adopted children. So His love for us is not only this covenantal love of a marriage, it is also this kind of parental love that God has for His children. Imagine the a love that you have for your child and multiply that by 10,000 is the love of God for you. Verse 4 even tells us that this was His plan before the foundation of the world, meaning that God loved you then. He loved you 10,000 years before He even put you on this earth. Romans 8.15, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So through this new birth, we go from having God as our judge to having God as our Father. And that new relationship sparks joy in our heart to where we see God in a personal way. We see Him in a fatherly way. He has a fatherly, parental kind of love for us. Now focus, think about the love that you have for your child. Maybe you see a group of children at the playground, and as you're scanning the group of children, you see your child. And that sparks a kind of joy in your heart that you do not have for any of those children. You may love them in a kind of way, like you love them as you are to love your neighbor. You might look out for their good, But when you see your child, it's just something happens inside. I remember seeing an interview with the late Steve Irwin, that very enthusiastic Australian uh, lover of animals, let's say. And he was describing what it was like when his daughter was born. And he was bouncing around the hospital. He was so excited. He was showing her to all kinds of people. And one woman says, yes, I have a daughter too. And he says, yeah, but you ain't got one like that. That was my bad Australian accent. It's, it's, it's fascinating the kind of love that we have for children, for our children. And the love goes beyond their behavior. They could be rotten and they could do terrible a terrible sin, or they could grow up and reject the God that you have trained them to know, and you still love them. God loves you as a child, as His child. In fact, when the Apostle John writes his first letter, he is so overwhelmed with this idea, you can feel his enthusiasm. 1 John 3.1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, 
that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. John goes on in that chapter to contrast the children of the devil to the children of God. And he uses an illustration of um, uh, Cain and Abel. And you could think about Romans 9 where Paul does something similar between um, Jacob and Esau. A couple more just to drive this point home. Ephesians 5.1 Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And so just as a child imitates his father, so we too are to imitate ours. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is why Jesus came. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so just as a child would receive an inheritance from his father, God tells us that we will receive an inheritance. All things. How's that for an inheritance? All things. Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So, God's love for us is a marital kind of love. It is a parental kind of love. And thirdly, a relational kind of love, which is meaning friendship. Had to stick with the alliteration here. And so, relational. I went with that. If those First two were not enough. It's like being married. It's like being a parent. Now we discover God's love for us is described as a love that you would have between friends. God has designed us in such a way that we desire companionship and to desire companionship that goes beyond the one flesh covenant relationship And so we are expected to have relationships with many people. And there is a kind of love associated with having friendships. You know people, as you think of all the people you know, there are a smaller subset of people within that larger group of people that you say, oh, I really love this person. I love spending time with this person. God describes His love for us in this way. God's desire is that we know Him. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God created Adam. God gave Adam a companion named Eve. And Adam and Eve, we can assume through certain language in the first two chapters, that they would meet with God regularly in the cool of the day. They had a kind of divine friendship with God. Of course, when Adam sinned, that was lost, and then God begins the process from Genesis all the way to the end of restoring mankind as joining people to Him, and in the Old Testament, it is described as 
Friendship. James 2.23, reflecting back on Genesis, he says, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. A friend of God. Put that on your resume. (laughs) A friend of God. Or in Exodus, when God raised up Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, we're told in Exodus 3.11 that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So we see hints of this kind of friendship language in the Old Testament. And then as we move into the New Testament, this is one of the ways that God communicates his love for people. Nowhere is this clearer than in the life of Jesus. Jesus walks on the earth. Jesus makes friends with sinners. In fact, his detractors wanted to slander him as often as they could. Such as in Luke 7.34, they, they say the Son of Man has come, sorry, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus befriended and still befriends sinners. They thought that was a point of discrediting him. It was actually bringing glory to him. And what God does through the gospel is he turns enemies into friends. Every conversion from day one has been God taking an enemy and turning that enemy into a friend. And it should not be a surprise when you read through the Gospels that Jesus had friends. Not just the twelve. He probably had friends among the twelve. They were kind of committed in a different way. But Jesus actually had people he liked to hang out with. Remember Lazarus and Martha and Mary, John chapter 11. So the sisters said to him, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, whom... Lord, he whom you love is ill. Speaking of Lazarus. Drop down a couple verses. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Drop down further, verse 11. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And then later on in the account, in verse 36, the Jews said, See how he loved him. Now, this chapter is an interesting example of jumping between different verbs for love. Sometimes it's agapao, sometimes it's phileo. But it does have that element of friendship. God, through Jesus, loves us as friends. This family was a big part of his life, at least one example. He would visit with them regularly, I believe. So it's no surprise that Jesus, the God-man, when he came to earth, he loved people and he had friendships with people. And we also know that a love of a friend is different than the love of a family member. It is different than the love of a spouse. But it is a very wonderful kind of love that we have experienced so that we get some kind of idea of how God loves us. 
On the night before he was crucified, Jesus had a Passover meal with the disciples. John 15, verse 12, he tells them, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So we do not merely serve the Lord, but we have a relationship with Him so that we could say with all biblical authority that we are friends of God. This is what it is to be a Christian. Entering into a relationship with Jesus is becoming friends with God. For many years now, I've gone to the park. I would take my dog to the park, and I would go there to meet with God. I pray in the morning. I have Bible time in the morning, but sometime in the afternoon, I would take my dog to the park, and that was sort of my little piece of earth where I would meet with him. And I would walk around the park, and I do that almost every day. I did it today, and I talk to him as a friend. I engage him. I share my burdens with him. I intercede for others. But I have the kind of attitude as I'm walking around and praying, I am talking to a very close friend. Closer than any human relationship I could possibly have. It almost sounds blasphemous that I could call God my friend. (laughs) But he's not ashamed to call us his friend. One final example from Revelation 3. Jesus is writing or addressing the various churches. And you know there are seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And the church at Laodicea who's really screwing up, he writes a warning to them. Revelation 3, 19 and 20, he says to those whom I love, there's that phileo verb for love again, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. If I was to write this in a modern kind of language, Jesus is saying, what are you guys doing? I thought we were friends. I'm knocking at your door. Are you going to let me in? So these are various ways that God describes His love for us. It is a marital kind of love, the kind of love a husband has for his wife. It is a parental kind of love, the kind of love a father has for his child. It is a relational kind of love, the kind of love shared among friends. And it is the kind of love where He is faithful to remember you even when you do not remember Him. And he has us gather like this regularly to receive communion as a time where we collectively remember him. Our love is imperfect. 
It is inconsistent. Sometimes, like the character in the movie, we forget. And communion is a time to remember. How do you know God loves you? If someone was to ask me, how do I know God loves me? I wouldn't say, well, I had an experience one night watching a movie. I would point them to Scripture. I would say, because Scripture says God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I had an experience watching this movie and I had a profound, I believe, understanding of the love of God more than I have before, but that does not that does not um, make it true. It may validate what I believe Scripture says, but it doesn't make it true. It's what God says to me. And what God says to me is that He gave me His very Son to become my substitute and Savior so that I can be the beloved of God, so that you can be the beloved of God, so that we are given the righteousness that God requires and so that He as lover of our soul, can call us into his presence. Reading from Luke's Gospel, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Our Lord, we remember you this day, but oh, how often we forget. Oh, how often we have a kind of amnesia, Lord, that We go about our day and we pursue things in life and we forget about you until you remind us once again, until we come to our senses, Lord. Please help us to stand by you, Lord. Help us to draw near to you this week. Help us to remember you always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.